episode 160 of the Anarchist News podcast on anarchist activity ideas and conversations from the previous week on anarchistnews.org. It's designed to be useful to anarchists and the anarcho-curious. Give us feedback and constructive criticism by email at podcast at anarchistnews.org. For more information and usually some good commentary, see you at your favorite non-sectarian anarchist site with commentary, anarchistnews.org. What's new this week? Conspiring to Keep People Alive, From Gods and Radicals by Reed Wildemuth. In general, I have really enjoyed Reed's pieces. What I've read of him has been personal and analytical in a mix and from a perspective that really works for me. But this piece departs from that analysis in a way that seems indicative of why I mostly don't enjoy Gods and Radicals as a site very much. So first, what I consider the good. There is a message in here that is absolutely worth getting at, which is that people who are serious about restructuring society or even imagining a different way to be are more interesting and engaging and worth taking seriously, in my opinion, even though I usually disagree with them when they have a kind of real life experience with how things actually work. In this case, Reed's friend has a skill set and a perspective unknown to a population that rejects professionalism almost by default. Unfortunately, buying into the system enough to get those positions and skills in the first place almost always goes along with beliefs that are friendlier to reform than to tearing it all down. This is an actual conundrum that I'm shortcutting because this is a complicated topic that Reed only alludes to as he has different points to make. Quote, how might locally elected leaders or elders deal with the insistence of some individuals to act in a way that threatens entire communities? Could we imagine anarchists levying fines or imprisonment on someone who refuses to stay inside while they are contagious? Even after the smartest, the most impartial, and the most politically correct scientists in a network of communes has verified that containment is the only way to save millions, what would a society based on self-determination do with the egoists among them asserting there's no such danger? Do we even know how we would respond? Or are we merely content to leave such things to our current sovereigns while posing critical and elite stances that they're overreacting. I recounted my best friend's experiences at the beginning of this essay for a reason, because it's in both his work and life that I get glimpses of what our own responses could be, unquote. In a time when people are stressed and afraid, this article focuses on egoists and self-determination as the people and perspective to be most wary of and to plan against, rather than preparing for the overwhelming force of rule followers, surveillance, state agents, etc that even someone like Snowden warns us of. I don't know, maybe we're all sick of anarchist-adjacent folks writing about the coming increase in state power, or maybe Reed has some super obnoxious people calling themselves egoists in his life. But just saying. Interruption suspended from Ill Will Editions, the second in Ill Will's epistolary series, overly Marxist and unimaginative to my ear, though there are bits of imagery and nuance that work well enough. For a writer who says that we should be like water, the piece ends with basically saying radicals should continue on as before. So apparently they mean being like water in the sense of water dripping on a stone versus some other kind of water action. Quote, beyond that, we will continue just as before, trying to effectively produce the things we need outside of the economy, while in turn impairing the latter severely, preparing ourselves to catch those who wander away from this world, as so many will have nowhere else to turn. Local struggles will certainly encounter limits in upturning a global problem. Yet they gesture towards each other. This is unmistakable. Their rhythms synchronize, bursting into chorus ever more often. This is why coordination at an international level is key to our moment. And yet as real as this chance to stop the devastation of the planet and build a more free world feels from inside quarantine, at other times it seems like every other missed opportunity, a mirage. 
Dreadful panic sets in, the frozen sun goes down. Fear, uncertainty, loss, we live in the darkest of times. Our task is still to introduce a real state of emergency. Wash your, wash your hands, wear a mask, unquote. Hmm. Anarchism and Pandemics from C4SS by Willie Gillis. Interesting that Gillis and Reed go in the same direction this week, but, well, maybe not interesting at all. Oh, well. Anyway, Gillis here poses the question to himself, wouldn't a free society be especially ravaged by pandemics? And answers it by extolling the virtues of shaming, because apparently he continues to benefit from cancel culture more than to suffer from it. Other than that, this is just another overly long basic anarchy article about how states get in the way more than they help. Useful for some, maybe. Quote, as with so many things, so it is with pandemics. The state creates problems and then, having demolished or forbidden all other solutions, embraces the few things it is actually good at. The state breaks your legs and then offers you shoddy crutches. It impoverishes you and then provides food stamps. But that doesn't necessarily mean you should reject food stamps. A prisoner's first obligation is to escape, and sometimes that means accepting the warden's poisoned meals. Mixed metaphors, anyone? Anyway, there may be pandemic situations while the state still reigns where brutal quarantines are the lesser evil, even while we must acknowledge the long-term poison they represent, unquote. Moving on. For autonomous communication, North Shore Counter-Info at two years from North Shore Counter-Info. This is exactly what it sounds like, a reflection on two years of the project, including what their goals are and were, where the project is at now, how well the authors think the goals have been met so far, etc. Quote, the benefits of having this platform have been very rich. A surprising piece is how North Shore has enabled actions that might not have otherwise happened because there would have been no way to communicate about them. We are concerned with an emerging so-called common sense, even in some anarchist circles, that actions are only relevant when they are shared on social media. And so the only actions considered are those that can safely be posted to Facebook. This is intensely pacifying and greatly limits the kinds of tactics and strategies at our disposal, unquote. Unarguable that. Announcing the quarantine livestream from Black Rose Federation, quote, instead of binging the same series for the 10th time during Black Rose Rosa Negra as we launch our quarantine livestream, over the coming weeks we'll be hosting a series of live panel discussions on a variety of topics relevant to building popular power in precarious times, unquote. Yeah, instead of binging one series for the 10th time, listen to a series that's been repeating itself for decades. Yay, go leftists. Five quick thoughts on the limits of COVID-19 mutual aid groups and how they might be overcome. From Freedom News. This starts out not so bad, even if the problems it describes are entirely predictable for anyone who's been around for a minute. But then, oh well. Quote, too many times over the last few weeks, I've seen comrades flouncing out of WhatsApp groups because they aren't interested in being involved in a group that isn't explicitly political. As of caring for and with those deemed expendable, isn't in and of itself vital work, as if they wouldn't associate themselves with people who don't automatically think like they do. And giving in to these Puritan impulses, which exist in many of us, <laughs> myself included, we not only doom ourselves to irrelevance, but we abandon the people and ideals we claim to care so much about, unquote. In certain moods, I can have some understanding of anarchists whose definition of anarchy is do good things, but come on, do they listen to themselves? Anarchists should apparently spend all their time keeping people alive and other vital work because it's vital? Oh, Freedom News, when will you surprise us? Virus in the Body Politic, Issue 1 Now Online, from Anarchist Communist Group. Quote, in this issue, we look at the politics of oppression, how critiques of patriarchy and homophobia have been important aspects of the anarchist movement of the past. But as we note in a major article on intersectionality, quote, 
The retreat from class politics, indeed collective politics generally, is a product of political privatization, a form of individuation that is itself caused by a period of political retreat. The emphasis on individual responses, call-out culture, responses to microaggressions, etc., to oppressive behaviors as opposed to the structural source of that oppression through collective struggle is a product of the crisis in the belief that society can be transformed through working-class revolution. Unquote. This is now plaguing the movement in this country, as well as strong anti-organizational tendencies and a capitulation to social democracy in the shape of Corbynism and various nationalisms. We look at ways we could organize effectively based on contemporary struggles. Unquote. Enough said. By which I mean, you can't make me read more of this. Anarchists and the coronavirus from Winter Oak, a site that doesn't have anarchy anywhere in its about us. This submission to A News is of the publication from Winter Oak called The Acorn, an organic radical bulletin, and this is a quote special report unquote of The Acorn. This is the very model of an online publication, pulling full paragraphs as links from and to various other websites, including It's Going Down, Corporate Watch, The Anarchist Communist Group, and North Shore Counter Info to name some out of at least a dozen. This is not an anarchist publication. It is not even particularly anarchist friendly. Quote, unfortunately, there is also little critical questioning of the reality of the coronavirus threat, which is being so ably manipulated by the capitalist system to push its own agendas. This is despite mounting evidence of something extremely fishy going on, presented by intelligent sources. It increasingly looks as if the coronavirus scare has been whipped up as a cover for a power grab by the network of capitalists promoting the fourth industrial revolution of 5G, smart meters, the internet of things, nanotechnology, and AI, unquote. Apparently these folks don't know anyone who works in healthcare. Anyway, it goes on like that. I want to support people who are skeptical. I even appreciated the person who didn't believe that Aragorn had died. But so many conspiracists give conspiracy a bad name. Sigh. An anarchist glance at the protests and the resignation of indigenous president Evo Morales from Act for Freedom. This is both a translated piece and also an introduction to a new translating group called Anonymous Translation Group, or GTA. They expect to be publishing translated books and pamphlets, and in the meantime, give us this detailed piece on Bolivia. Quote, but putting aside all the citizenism and the institutions that try to govern life, when we talk about a place like Bolivia with its population predominantly racialized as indigenous, there are things that deserve more attention. First of all, that this ruler that they no longer love represented more than a mere president. Evo Morales was made into the symbol of the Andean indigenous people, almost as an image to be exported, and was avidly accepted by the whole range of alternative leftists. And even if it is true that his government allowed a mass injection of the original peoples into hotels, public buildings, seats, and places of political power that many never accepted before, other than to clean or to sell something, he invented nothing about the struggle of the original peoples, nor sought recognition of their official status by the Bolivian state." Unquote. Good luck to all concerned here, and looking forward to seeing the output of the translators in particular. The Failure of Revolution from Blackbird Journal, originally in Black and Green Review by Kevin Tucker. Sometimes you forget that Kevin Tucker has a metal band, and then you read something like this. A piece from the 2010 book for Wildness and Anarchy, this essay, or perhaps more accurately a written scream, is KT's super big brain refutation of revolution, which apparently was very relevant in 2010 or whatever. Quote, Ironically, I resisted the thought. I begged and pleaded with myself to make room for a revolution against civilization. But over the years, I've come to terms with the undeniable reality. Revolutions always have been and always will be strictly political in nature. 
I've worn off my once deeply held beliefs in anarcho-syndicalism from its anachronistic cynicism of human nature. It has become increasingly clear that no resistance to civilization can come through this mythic, fabled ideal. Revolution, tired as it is to a looming techno-industrial, political nightmare of a reality. My doubts have come to the surface and the sacred cow was laid before me. A rotted corpse animated by half-truths and ideals of what liberation may look like. Not only could revolution never bring about a feral future, it's become increasingly harder to imagine it bringing about any society that looks what it... (laughs) (laughs) It bringing about any society like what its utopian forebears had envisioned. So before I bash revolution for my own sake, let me attack it for its own, unquote. Yeah, it goes on like that for a while. It also veers off into weird attacks on Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman for not being against production and accuses an insurrectionary journal of being, quote, poetic ramblings that have been used effectively by any lofty ideologue from Trotsky to Hitler with anarchists sharing the vagueness <gasps> in between, unquote. Oh my God. Perhaps someday we will come to understand KT's big brain greatness. Not if I have anything to say about it. Let the strikes return, let squats proliferate, let the looting come from abolition media worldwide. Brief piece from a publication called Madrid Quarantena City. Basic anti-capitalism, though with a hint of anti-electoralism too. Quote, and let us do it, knowing that the state is already prepared with thousands of military, police, cameras, and drones to protect order, to protect property, and to protect work, because the authority is a guarantor of the exploiters to continue subduing the exploited. We will take to the streets. We will not forget. We will not forgive. There will be no government, ballot box, vote, military, police, journalist, or judge capable of containing the epidemic of rage and revolt. It is up to us to hit back loot the rich unquote yeah let's do that announcing rock paper scissors volume two number two from jesus radicals on one hand i hold the christian church responsible for a vast array of the terrible things of daily life on the other hand like so many tools we use because we have no others the church has been used to do things that i don't entirely hate there are other hands to be counted but we can simplify it to my two for now So this is a publication that reached out to ANews to see if we were willing to include them. And at least for this issue, we are. You all don't need me to hold your hand about how incredibly destructive the Christian church has been, and how overwhelmingly terrible Christianity has been over the centuries, how the binaries we are mostly so stuck within can reasonably be laid at its doors, etc. Does that mean that it can't be useful at least for limited periods of time, in limited circumstances for potentially minuscule groups of people? I don't know. At any rate, here is poetry, charity, good works, sacrifice, and many of the other greatest hits. Maybe Chisel shouldn't be the one writing up this project. Just a thought. How Buckingham Medical Made Me a Potential Death Statistic from SeanSwain.org. Sean continues to be a face for the bullshit that prisons do to people, an actual person to relate to, especially for those who don't have other folks we care about talking to us from prison. This is about how he was sick with something bacterial, went undiagnosed despite his best efforts, ended up treating himself through the generosity of a fellow prisoner, and now is sick again, and so at high risk, higher than he would have been otherwise, from the disease that is inevitably going to hit prison populations hard. And because it's Sean, he gives step-by-step instructions on how to help him. Quote, I can't use the grievance process because I'm not an offender as defined by the rules. I don't have a conviction in Virginia. And even if I could use it, I'd be dead before I was ever vindicated. I want to live through this. Anyone reading this should feel free to contact Buckingham at 434-983-4400. Either Warden John Woodson or Assistant Warden Jeffrey Snoddy are here each day during normal business hours. Ask for one. If he's not there, ask for the other. 
feel free to fax this update to them at 434-983-4017. Attach your demand that they do something to clear my infection now, unquote. Sedentary primitivism? From Rhea by Julian Langer. I guess this piece is somehow a response to the previously mentioned KT essay, though it's not entirely clear how. Although my, Greg's, previous encounters with Langer's writing made me want to scratch my eyes out, this short piece was not totally abominable or evil, I guess. Maybe just due to length. Quote, another nomadic movement within anarcho-primitivist thought is that which Rhea Montana brings to the discourse, that I reviewed here. I might have disagreements with Montana, but I appreciate that she is challenging some of the orthodox beliefs and inherited assumptions within rewilding praxis. Again, there is something desirable about individuals moving away from the sedentary locations that plagues this area of discourse, unquote. Certainly not a new idea, but many would definitely benefit from shaking up their positions a bit more often. Beyond the Dark Horizon from beyondthedarkhorizon.org, a downloadable PDF of green anarchist art, poetry, stories, and rants. Quote, what does it mean to be a green anarchist today amongst ruin with so little space without real hope of a happy ending that, that a happy horizon is gone? Some of us read a book about resistance in the concentration camps called Blessed is the Flame, inspiration from the stories of resistance in despair, resistance when you could not win in the face of certain and actual death. If people could slap their executioners in a death camp, then what right do we have to give up? Beyond the Dark Horizon was originally envisioned as a pocketbook that could be thumbed over for years. Perhaps a limited edition printed version will emerge when the time is right, but we wanted to get it out to you in an online version now. We hope that this helps you through this time, helps you to plot and bring energy to the ongoing struggle and what lies beyond. When we are not broke, barely hanging onto jobs, and able to distro them safely, we will do a limited edition print run." Unquote. I would argue that the, that that line about what right do we have is not quite getting the point, but okay. Audio and video, the ex-worker number 76, anarchist nurses speak out on survival and resistance. An hour and 56 minutes from CrimeThink. These podcasts just keep getting longer and fucking longer. This episode is a, quote, long conversation with two anarchist nurses from New Orleans, Louisiana, on a wide range of topics, including harm reduction, how to support healthcare workers, the legacy of AIDS activism, delineating between authority and expertise, <clears throat> and lots more, unquote. First to point out an error in Crime Thinks write-up, one of the nurses mentions that they are in fact a communist. Mm -hmm. This kind of slipperiness seems pretty endemic to anarchist media's response to COVID-19, as people scramble to find basically any and everyone who will talk about what to do during the pandemic. In this case, the interviewees mostly come off as being extremely naive, bringing up their realization that the CDC is in fact a political entity rather than one purely managed by irrational scientism, and also really trying to drive the point home that anarchists have a responsibility to society in both a don't spread the disease way and an anarchism just means being really nice sort of way. Anarchy Radio, April 7, 2020, always an hour. This episode of Anarchy Radio was submitted anonymously, but the submission has Jay-Z's fingerprints all over it. Due to the pandemic, Jay-Z is recording ahead of time, which means no pesky phone calls to get in the way of an old man reading his papers. If you've heard one episode of Anarchy Radio, you know what to expect from this one. Jay-Z brings up desert in what, at first, seems like a positive way, but then basically just calls it nihilist. He also calls out some not-anarcho-primitivist writers for not being anarchist-primitivist enough. So you know the huge.
Topic of the week, connectivity. This week, I've been thinking about how different it must have been when the connections between anarchists were not so internet-based, but were based on face-to-face interactions, phone calls, letters, letters sections, etc. In the 10 years I've been connecting to other anarchists, it's been mostly through emails, web forums, and IRC. I say this with some regret. I attended book fairs once or twice a year, of course, and reading groups every month or so, and on occasion, when forced, I even attend meetings. But my day-to-day connections to other anarchists are digital. Have I been missing out? If so, what have I been missing out on? What are the benefits of connecting IRL? What might be the challenges? Is it really as preferable to connecting online as I'm implying? Are there good things to be said about digital connections? After all, without anarchists on the internet, would a Euro-anarcho like me ever even heard of a certain publisher of dangerous books from SF? To those who've been around longer than I have, have you found yourself moving away from face-to-face interactions and letters sections, etc., as time has marched on? Or have you held fast to your pre-internet ways? If you fought the internet tide, how did you do it? How are you even reading this? What will connectivity look like a year or two from now? A decade? What will it look like for the next generation of anarchists? The ones whose births are being live-streamed on social media at this very moment. Send your comments free to post to P.O. Box 1312. It's cute. little humor there. Greetings, Anarchy Land. Ariel here. Uh, after a, a unfortunate break of a couple weeks due to uh, missed plans and being busy, but it's nice to be back. I have today with me uh, an old friend, uh, Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi. I asked Mike to come and have this conversation with me because Mike is one of the few anarchists that I know who has actually been around longer than I have, but (laughs) also Mike is a little, Mike has his finger in the pie of anarchy land a little more involved than I do. Uh, you're a bit more social than I am. Uh, you engage in a few more projects that live outside your house <laughs> than I do. True. True. Um, and so, uh, while we share a common history in terms of how we engage with anarchy, um, you are engaging with anarchy with the yeah with anarchy land a lot more than I am now. So, um, I think that you're going to have some more interesting answers to these questions than I am. Plus, if anybody who has ever listened to this podcast or The Brilliant, Aragorn and I have gone on ad nauseum about being anarchists and not really being on the internet. So, a fresh voice. So, welcome, Mike. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking to me. Thank you. So, okay. How to start <laughs> off. I mean, I think a big part of where I stand on this has to do with who I am. I enjoy being with people. Some of that may be generational, you know, because yes, I did many years of anarchy before the internet existed, but some of that is just, I think, who I am, you know. I enjoy being around people. I've always lived collectively. I've never lived alone. Even when I lived in my car, I had other people living with me. My goodness. You know. So, you know, I think it's just important to, like, I think, be clear about that, and that my bias is about interacting with people in real life. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, because of who I am. Mm-hmm. Because I get a lot from reading people's body language. I get a lot from being around people and talking to them directly. So that's always been my preferred mode of interaction. On the other hand, I am not someone who thinks that the internet is all bad and everything has gone downhill since the internet has come. I think there's pluses and minuses, right? Like with most things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, I think a lot of us, and I'm including myself here, um, ended up in anarchy land, not because we are so much smarter than everyone else, but we ended up here because we distrust mainstream society in certain ways because of different things that happen to us in life. Mm-hmm. And as one of many reasons. And one of the ways that we were able to, one of the ways I was able to understand for myself some of the messed up stuff, messed up things that happened to me in my life was once I got a systemic analysis for why those things occurred, it was a lot easier for me to carry some of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means is that um, a lot of us have social skills that are questionable at best. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I think even interacting with a lot of anarchists in real life is not simple. Actually, interacting with most any human beings in real life is not simple. Understandings happen really easily. Conflict happens really easily. I think that's true for a lot of humans. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly in the United States, which tends to be a culture that's not very communally based. Mm-hmm. I was raised in another country where your primary identity was who your family was. Sure. Nobody, you know, if somebody asked you who you were, you didn't talk about like what your hobbies were, or what you thought, or what your favorite color was. You talked about who your family was and who the people you were connected to. And that's true in certain subcultures in the United States too, but by and large, right, when people think about themselves, they think about who they individually are right. as opposed to they who they are collectively and what right. connections And so I think because of that, it is harder to sort of connect with people in certain ways anyway. And I think the Internet has made that both worse and easier. Mm-hmm. Right. Clearly, the Internet makes it much easier to find people all across the country, all across the world, who believe some of the same strange little weird things that I do. Right. You know, for the Internet, we had anarchist gatherings. And I remember going to some of the first anarchist gatherings, and there was like a few hundred people who believed some of the same stuff I did. And it was like a miracle, you know, because every town had its own little crew of like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 maybe maybe a few more anarchists but most times hardly had that you know there's a few punk rock kids running around friends with each other interacting that way and when we had a gathering it was like oh my god you know there's a world and there's people in that world who believe what we do and this is a lot easier these days with the internet right people can pretty easily find other people who they have shared belief with. Um, it was a lot more work, you know, even when you had to get the zines or mm-hmm. you had to you get had to write the letters. Your magazines or the letters or whatever, right? Yep. Or, you know, the uh, 
Well, one of the big ways people used to communicate was, um, I don't know if you remember the uh, phone cards where you had to enter a bunch of numbers. Yeah. Right? Yep. And one of the big things among anarchists was stealing the phone card numbers from corporations and then using yep. those to call people all over the country, right? Oh, yes. Uh, most of those phone cards only used to last days. Sometimes yep. you had one for like a week. Sometimes you had one for a month. And that was definitely oh. one of the ways we stayed in touch, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't um, think I ever heard of one lasting a month. But yeah, no, totally. Right? And so, you know, but I think, you know, obviously the internet has made it easier that way. But I think also, and more problematically, it's very difficult to hear tone right. and to hear subtlety mm-hmm. in online interactions, right? right? What you and I, even being able to hear each other's voice over the phone, might interpret things really differently if it was in the written form, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's also been a lot of conflict that could have probably been avoided if people had been actually speaking to each other. Right. Or at least if they were in conflict, it would have been clear about what the fuck it was about. Well, yeah, know? what the conflict was actually about as opposed to right. what it was supposedly about. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. And so... You know, being able to hear the emotional content in someone's voice, being able to hear irony, being able to hear whether someone is actually laughing while they're saying something or deadly serious while they're saying something. Mm-hmm. You know, those things, you know, rarely are people good enough writers to be able to carry that kind of tone in their writing. Right. You know, yeah. it is much, I mean, some people can, but most people cannot. No, most people I can't. Can. Most good writers can't do it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, when I think of Occupy, for example, and the sheer amount of conflict that happened there, you know, um, had something to do, I think, with, well, there was, you know, I don't think the internet was the sole cause, but the amount of back and forth and accusations that happened over Facebook and other social media, you know, Um, because basically, the further your distance is from an actual person, the less a lot of people feel responsible for the interaction they're having and the less they're actually able to gauge, you know, what that interaction is about and what the tone of it actually is. For sure. And I think the combination of being unable to gauge what the tone is and being able to, you know, feel more anonymous and not have to take full responsibility is a problematic one. Um, Because even on the best of days, when people are just talking to face to face, you know, those things can become difficult. Right. So I think the internet in that sense has made conflict worse <laughs> and weirder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is not to say conflict wasn't there before. No. That's not to say that there wasn't certainly a lot of ugliness and a lot of complicated stuff before. Right. All of that existed, right? It's just mm-hmm. a question of whether or not. And I think it did make those things worse. So, you know, yeah. To me, it's both. You know, it has made things some things harder, and it has also allowed people to reach out to folks they would never have been able to reach out otherwise. Yes, that for sure. It's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, that we lose tone um, <clears throat> and uh, all of the things that come when you can hear a person's voice in terms of having a conversation. And I remember the time in my life when if I wanted to talk to someone about something that was important, I had to seriously consider whether it was a phone call conversation or a face-to-face conversation. 
That's right. Because of course, when you're face to, when when you are on the phone, you you lose facial expressions and body language and gestures yep. and um, yep. those things matter. And how much do those things matter? And so you know, just kind of the grady the gradation of these things um, as time goes on. Uh, do you? I'm curious about how much time you spend around people who are of the generation that do more of their anarchy on the internet? Because I actually spend very little time around people in that age range. I do, actually. And it's been, you know, and again, I think it's interesting. I it, I had a funny moment. Um, I actually got my first cell phone when right after Trump got elected. Because I figured it was time. Um, and I knew I was going to be doing more organizing. And so it was I was going to need to be able to do that. Um, and I was at some kind of like a work party where people were making props for something and a bunch of younger folks in their early 20s, maybe, maybe even a little younger than that. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're talking about, you know, how they were a crew and they were tight and everything else. And in the course of their conversation, I realized that they'd only met in person, like, weeks, maybe a month ago. Mm-hmm. and But they had been sort of friends online for a while longer than that. Sure. You know, and that, that like, counted in terms of, like, trust and, and all these different things, you know, that they felt they had with each other, which, you know, I was like, wow, okay, that's clearly a generational thing. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, I mean, I... I go on the internet, I read things, I, you know, I have interactions with people, but I don't think of those interactions as the same no. as people who I have regularly in my life, particularly right. in terms of the kind of trust I have for them and the kind of things I would do with them. Or right? even necessarily enough to call them friends. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, you know... And again, I don't want to make a big thing like, oh, that's silly or that's ridiculous and I can't believe they're doing that. I mean, they certainly found each other and they had a way of finding each other. Like, this was really a crew of people who had some very similar beliefs and who felt very bonded with each other, you know? And so, you know, to me, that just feels like a strong generational difference. And there was some stuff that they had to figure out with each other once they were actually in real life interacting that were not the same as their online interaction. Right. Particularly once people became involved with each other physically and other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. there was some, there was some stuff that had to get figured out, you know? And I think some of that was a little bit of a surprise to them, you know? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, again, maybe better they found each other that way than not finding each other at all. Right. Well, that's always my position for sure, is that, you know, it's, and I've said this before, probably even here. So, uh, um, Anarchy Magazine, uh, in its heyday, always had a barcode. It was always Mm -hmm. distributed through one of the national distributors. And the whole point Uh of that was so that it could be on the shelves in Barnes & Noble, because Barnes & Noble was everywhere every major city in every state had at least one barnes and noble and so if you were as far as you knew 
you know, one of four anarchists in Loris, Kansas, right. you could go and get yourself a copy of Anarchy Magazine. That's right. And that was really, really important to the publisher of Anarchy Magazine at the time. Um, and there is definitely something about, and you know, like when you, when you got a zine and, you know, all the words in the zine were like, yes. And then you flipped it over and there was the PO box and you wrote the letter and then you, you know, <laughs> waited for the, and just because you read the zine didn't actually mean you knew who that person was. Most often they right. didn't have names on them or they That's have pseudonym. Um, right. And, uh, you know, you're just writing the letter, just hoping, or, you know, you're reading punk rock lyrics and this band, like their politics is it's right on. And so you're just waiting for them to come to town and just hoping you can have a conversation with them. And um, so part of my point is that the, there was still a, a, a hint of anonymity and incompleteness to those kinds of connections, even though they were analog sure. connections. Um, yeah. And in some ways, the distance, the the letter writing, was sustainable, and sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was the hope that it was going to culminate in a in an in person meeting. Um, sure. uh, hence, those anarchist events, those gatherings that had hundreds of people, because oh my god, is this thing actually going to happen? And people would come from all over. Hmm. Now there are book fairs all over the place, and that feels less. Uh, crucial, I think, than yeah. it did then. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, the the person who wrote the question asks if they have been missing out because most of their day to day connections to other anarchists are digital, and if they have been missing out, what have they been missing out on? What are the benefits of connecting in real life, and what might be the challenges? And I guess. My answer to that is, yes, you are missing out, but not because necessarily being with people in person is better. I mean, I'm going to make the argument that it is, but that's mostly because I'm old. Um, <laughs> but just because I think more is better. Yeah. Um, and the challenges of meeting people in person are very similar to as you talked about meeting people online uh, and also very different from, uh, and again, I'm surrounded by a group of awkward anxiety filled, a social anarchists who, you know, many of them, right. the idea of meeting someone new in actual flesh is terrifying. That's right. a horrible idea. They don't want to do that. Right. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that you have to deal with, that is an entirely different experience when you're online. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that it's that it is easier yeah. to find who you're looking for to connect. Um and you know, I know I know some amazing people who found crucial influential pieces of anarchy when they were like 14 or 15 years old. And I I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Yep. Um and I just, I didn't, it wasn't at my fingertips and I just didn't have somebody to push me in the right direction. And there wasn't really the environment for me to stumble on it accidentally because that's not what you found in the library in Columbus, Ohio in the 80s. Sure. Um, Emma yeah. Goldman was not on the shelves. Right. Uh, um, so part of me is also like, I'm jealous 
Right. Like, my God, if somebody put Sacco and, Vanzetti, Sacco and Vanzetti in front of me when I was 12, okay, well, that could have changed my life. Um, so, uh, but I mean, yeah. Part of me also, right? If we're talking about anarchy as the world of ideas, then that's certainly true. But if we're talking about anarchy as a social relationship, right, then that's a different conversation, right? Well, I mean, yes, but, and, and we, we had a huge conversation about this on an episode of the Anarchy Bang Cod podcast. I mean, on, there's a way that the obvious answer is yes, and there's a way that the answer is we have to redefine social. That's right. No, you're true. You're right. That is more complicated. It has to evolve yeah. with right. the world. Like, you know, like my, you and me, our generation, we don't get to own social. No, we don't get to right. say that it just looks like this thing. It no, looks, it's, it, it, it's just legitimately looks at those group of kids who were friends but only met, met a month ago. <laughs> well, and now those folks, the younger generations, uniquely poised to be able to deal with social distancing. <laughs> I know, right? Good for them. It's really different <laughs> for us, I think. Yeah, okay. no, I totally agree with you. And and you are totally right. It's not like in the past, like in the days of letter writing, you know, that there wasn't ambiguity and there wasn't confusion and there wasn't rumors and there wasn't all the same problems, right, that there right. exist on social media. Yeah. No, know? it was not a utopia. No, far, far from it. And I don't want to suggest at all that it was. Yeah. You know? um, and it's not like because you went to an anarchist gathering that lasted a week that you really got to know people well enough and had all these intimate sort of in real life interactions, you know, that caused you to know them so deeply and understand them so deeply. You know, a lot of people I met in those days, I met in passing. Sure. At different events. Sure. And I got to know them so-so, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but there's definitely something really powerful about standing in a room. And looking around you at all these bodies and realizing you're not alone. That is absolutely true. And I think that is important. You know, I think claiming some amount of space with some decent amount of people, whether it is through some kind of an action or through some kind of get together is important. Yeah. And that is one of the things that I think is missing a little bit because I see less events like that getting put on as online interactions becoming more common. Yeah. And, you know, because it's a lot of work to put that stuff on. And that is, that is, I think, a loss, actually, you know. Yeah. Because there is a, I, you know, and again, it may be, you're right, we have to redefine social, you know. But I think there are some things that are hard to know about people and hard to understand about people unless you have been around them physically. Right. And been in actual physical relation to them in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, that doesn't preclude you from talking to them about their ideas and getting them to know on that level as well, right? But there are some, some levels of trust that are hard to get to that way. Yeah. Know. No, agreed. Well, let's close by looking at the last, uh, the last bit of the question here. Um, what will connectivity look like a year or two from now, a decade? What will it look like for the next generation of anarchists, the uh-huh. one whose births are being live streamed on social media at this very moment? 
You feel like being a little prophetic, Mike? Whew. Um, boy, I read enough science fiction that I should have some real answers for this. This is exactly where I go. <laughs> I'm digging deep into the well of science fiction novels. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm ready to get downloaded into a new body because this one's getting old. That's just so, so I feel ya. I just want to make sure the body I'm getting downloaded into doesn't come with a, with a chip that allows them to locate me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, honestly, I think it's hard to say what connectivity is going to look like, you know, in the next generation. I mean, I'm thinking the easy answer is for just to get more embedded, you know, like mm-hmm. more constant. I think there was a big jump, right, from being connected on your computer on different platforms to people being connected on their phones. Right. I think, uh, I mean, I used to check my computer, you know, two, three times a day for email, for whatever. And ever since I've had a cell phone, certainly texts are coming in all the time, right? And so I think, you know, it is the nature of the virtual world to to intrude upon the rest of our lives. More and more so, right? Mm-hmm. So that intrusion is only going to become more intense. So I think our connectivity, you know, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't want to make it sound like some kind of a conspiracy. You know, I think it is just the nature of the thing that it's just going to intrude on our lives more intensely and that people are just going to experience that intrusion as a part of their lives. In other words, that current generations, I don't think you can think of it as an intrusion the way you or I might. You right. Know? Yeah, I think that that's true. And actually, my version of this is similar. I think that virtual reality is going to get better and better and cheaper and cheaper okay. and easier to access. Um, and then people okay. are going to actually physically, virtually be able to be in a room together. Right. And that, and, and again, pulling this straight from science fiction, and that there will get to a point where that will be as normal, if not more normal, than... Um, getting together in real life. And my argument for this is talking to a 13-year-old boy who told me that he played basketball with his friends yesterday. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. What position do you play? And he goes, well, it depends on what character I'm playing. And I looked at him confused. Mm -hmm. And Uh I was like, "You mean? what do you mean character? He goes, well, because when you play NBA 2K, you get to pick. And I'm like, oh, you mean you played basketball with your friends online on a video game? And he's like, yeah. I said, you know, that's not the same thing. And he's like, yeah, it is. Okay. So there we go. Well, thank you, Mike, for your time. Uh, Anarchy Land, thank you all for being here. And uh, enjoy you the rest of your week. Bye. This week's podcast was sound edited by Greg. The What's New was written by Chisel and Greg. And we thank Ariel and Mike E. for their help with the topic of the week. To learn more anarchist and anti-political books, pamphlets, and other material are again available at littleblackcart.com. Yay! Woo! For news by and or about anarchists and up to the minute commentary, see you at anarchistnews.org and or the Anarchist News IRC chat room linked on news. Uh,
only now.